and welcome to the Renaissance Polymath. I'm your host, Toby Gagnon, and I am joined by my guest, Bill Thomas. On this episode, we would like to discuss financial well-being. Let's go ahead and get things started. Well, welcome, Bill. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming out today and tonight and having this discussion with me in the podcast studio that is the study in my house. Oh. Well, I say study. It was a den. Now it's a study. We've actually got books in here. Um, I know why I asked you out here today to have the discussion about financial well-being, but for those, for the listeners out there who obviously don't know you, hopefully you share this episode with somebody you do know, but for those of the uh, listeners who don't know you, do you mind walking us through kind of your history and maybe credentials and stuff as it relates to the topic of financial well-being? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've worked in financial services for about 13 years now. Uh, I started out in credit cards. Uh, eventually, I became a, a personal banker uh, at a local banking center. And while I was there, I really learned about the importance of, of making smart financial decisions. But I also realized that, you know, no one can make smart financial decisions if they don't understand the basics of financial literacy. So teaching financial literacy really became a passion of mine. Uh, today, I no longer work as a personal banker, but I still volunteer my time teaching financial literacy courses through an initiative uh, I'm involved with called Better Money Habits. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of great videos, reading material anyone can find online, bettermoneyhabits.com. I'd recommend checking it out. But in my day job currently, um, I work in a, a, an area called Treasury Finance. And there, I frequently monitor what's happening in the market, interest rates, and other factors that would impact financial well-being, such as the rate of inflation. Okay. So you mentioned this this organization that you work with, you work through, you're accredited by. What was the name of that again? Uh, it's Better Money Habits, and it's it's actually a partnership between the Khan Academy and Bank of America, um, and they've partnered to just provide you know, materials, videos, all sorts of things on any topic related to financial literacy or education. Um, it's all online. And what we'll often do, actually just uh, last week, last Tuesday, um, I volunteered at a, a local, uh, local place that provides housing uh, for people who have jobs. Um, but, you know, just through not understanding how to manage their money, found themselves in hard times in their learning financial literacy. And, and we went there and um, used materials from Better Money Habits to sort of present. And I presented on credit for that. And this is free to them. This is a, a resource that's free in person. Is it also free online? Is there a, a free version and a paid version? Or how does that work? It's all free. It's all free. Yep. So the idea is to give people the education and the tools to help them succeed financially yep. going forward. Okay. Yeah, exactly. What kind of feedback do you get from the people who, who go through the training either in person or online? Have you gotten any feedback and what does that look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, after the, the event last week, so we covered uh, managing debt, uh, credit, which is what I did, um, budgeting, as well as home ownership and at least the the feedback that the the person who was leading the event uh, provided was that um you know the residents at this at this place loved it 
you know, so uh, it was it was very positive feedback, you know, hopefully they they use it for um, to, to help them in the future. Do you have any success stories or anything like that, that that you're aware of that the organization has not necessarily through the volunteerism that you've done, but that the organization has provided to these people? Are there any success stories, general ideas or anything like that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I don't have specific ones just because of, you know, the privacy of the of the the residents, but they provide um, information on how money that is donated to this organization is being spent. Uh, they provide their success rate uh, for actually getting people into homes, um, and all that information. Um, is on the website, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And the res- website again was? BetterMoneyHabits.com. Yeah. Th- information about this particular uh, place, you would have to you'd have to go to their website. Um, but just for privacy reasons, won't. Uh, yep. No, I completely understand. I'm all about privacy. I think that it's very important. In fact, I've, al- I've already got, so a little teaser for the, for the listeners going forward here, maybe even for you. Um, I've got a close friend of mine, somebody I consider basically family, non-blood family, very much like I consider you. Um, And she is, I don't want to spoil it too much, but she is a very security-minded individual as it relates to electronic data. Mm. And I've got a whole episode planned with her where, actually I've got multiple episodes that I have in mind for that, but the first one we're going to talk about kind of digital privacy what that is how we can be better in our own lives about maybe not putting all this kind of stuff on the internet uh, whether it's in audio form like this or actual in writing form somewhere so cool well thank you for sharing that you said it was bettermoneyhabits.com that's right fantastic well to me financial well-being doesn't necessarily mean having like gobbits of money just just hey i'm rolling around in this stuff i'm in a I'm in a Jay-Z video, and I'm just rolling in money, and we're lighting stuff on fire. I think that's funny. Um, I, in fact, I actually found um, the, the money that they use in movies isn't real money, but it's obviously printed to look like real money. We actually had some in our community. I was riding my bicycle around, and I happened across this. I'm like, what is that? And I picked it up, and you know, it says for production only or for movie production only or whatever it is. Kind of cool. Interesting. A little okay. inside baseball there. But anyway, talking about financial well-being, um, you don't have to have gobbits of money, at least in my opinion. In fact, I think you can have financial well-being regardless of your income level. How do you define financial well-being? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely agree that financial well-being, it really has nothing to do with how much money you have. Uh, in fact, there are plenty of stories of people who, you know, would once be defined as wealthy but didn't know how to manage their money. And ended up spending it all without any foresight or a real long-term plan. Uh, in fact, I saw a stat recently that 16% of retired NFL players file for bankruptcy by their 12th year in retirement. Oh, my you know? gosh. And on average, it said something like within three years, they generally make about $6 million, but still find themselves in, in bankruptcy. So financial well-being to me is, is really just having a basic understanding of how to manage the money you have uh, while having a long-term plan to you know whether any emergency per or prepare for future events like weddings college or retirement 
Okay, so financial well-being isn't making all the money that you possibly can. At least that's not that's not the idea of being financially well. Financially well is managing what you do have while maybe also striving for more. Yep. Okay. That I'm glad we're kind of on the same playing field. So full disclosure we came into this i I sent bill a couple notes um and i actually uh asked him to go back and listen to a couple episodes and uh so we'll get into that here in a second but i didn't really know exactly where bill was going to lie on this but uh but anyway we'll, we'll keep moving through um in episode six i talked about financial basics and in episode seven i talked about uh saving for retirement in those episodes, I mentioned how I had a roommate who introduced me to uh, both of those things and how thankful I was that they did. Well, Bill, you are that roommate, so thank you. If I haven't said it to you in person before, sincerely, thank you for introducing me to finances. Yeah. Um, it wasn't something that I had, which is kind of the whole reason I started this podcast. It wasn't so that I could get my name out there and make gobbets of money and be financially well off. It was honestly, it was my way of, if I could, create a time machine and go back in time and talk to myself as a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old. Hey, I'm fresh out of school. Now what? Right? Yep. So that's really why I started this. And, and you introduced me to that because I didn't have it up in my life up to that point. So thank you. Thank you for, for doing that for You're me. Welcome. It has helped me, helped me a great deal. Uh, with your insight your encouragement and your teachings have, have helped me get on what I think is the right path financially. My question is, in those episodes, did you have any differing opinions or any additional advice? And it sounds like you might, given what you do, how you volunteer your time. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I was I was just happy that you were willing to listen. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, you know, you're a great example. Not only are you in a better situation financially, but, you know, now through your podcasts, you know, you've become an advocate and helping others with the same thing. So Well, thank you. Um, so as far as the, the sixth and seventh episodes, I actually thought that you covered the topics very well. Um, and I and I really thought that you hit on the importance of maximizing the earnings potential of compound interest by starting early. I think that's actually something that is critically important. Um, I wouldn't say this is necessarily a differing opinion, uh, but I did want to mention one thing. So in the seventh episode, uh, you mentioned the average rate of return for, for uh, bonds is around 5%. So these days, and this is something that in my day job, I, I monitor uh, very closely, and um, I actually check it almost at the end of every single day and checked it again today. So uh, just to give you an idea, if you were to lend money to the U.S. government. Which is US, what a bond is, right? Yep, U.S. Okay. Treasury bond, uh, 10 years, you would be paid 1.22% today. Oh my God! For ten years, if you were to lend for thirty years, you'd be paid one point eight eight percent today, and so that gives you an idea how interest rates are actually at historic lows, mm. and it changes obviously over time. Um, but the other side of that coin is borrowing costs are at historic lows as well, right? So while you may not be able to invest at five percent you know maybe one day we'll get back there and you know um but what you can do is you can borrow money um 
mortgages or car loans or whatever at much lower rates than you could historically. Okay. Yeah, because I remember, I, for instance, my wife's parents, they were talking about how I think their first home loan was something like they locked in at like 19% and all of a sudden. And they probably thought it was good. And they did because they were like, we locked in at 19 and then it went down to 12 like three months later. Yep. So you're right. I mean, things things absolutely can change. And that wasn't something I even thought about or or, or planned for when I did those episodes. And, and honestly, it's not something I think about because it's not what I do for a living. It's not what I, I look at on a regular basis. And I remember when we lived together, your routine was you'd come home and you'd get inside, you'd take your coat off, you'd throw it on the back of your chair, and you'd sit down, you'd open your computer, and you would look at the world news, and you'd also look at how that affected the finance of the world. And that was intriguing to me. I'm like, why is he looking at this every day? Like, who cares? It's just money, you know? And <laughs> I don't have any of it's why I don't look at it. But it was it was cool to see. It's also nice to know that that habit of you just coming home. And at the time, I think you were a personal banker. But that habit yep. obviously yep. led to kind of what you do today. And now you do it every single day, but it's part of what you get paid to do now. So that's, that's right. really interesting. So for anybody out there listening, if you have a habit that you do every single day, maybe someday it could pay off dividends in the long run. Let's use a little financial pun there. And you might get paid to do it. It might be part of your profession. Yep, absolutely. And I, you know, I love what I do. That's a big thing. Talk about financial well-being. Last episode, we talked about personal wellness with uh, with my wife, Cassie, and we focused more on the physical aspect of it, um, working out, nutrition, stuff like that. But obviously, part of personal wellness is is mental health, which is going to be a whole nother episode. Um, she's that that's not where her qualifications lie, so I didn't want to really dive into it too much. But it um, that's a big thing, and liking what you do for work can help, in my opinion, can help set you up for betterment in the home, betterment in your in your personal life outside of the home, your relationships, whether it be friends, family, etc. I think I yeah, think that job goes absolutely. a long way to that. Often people are told not to quote unquote live beyond their means. Whenever I hear this, I usually hear the term budget thrown around as well. You also mentioned that term earlier on in our conversation already. Can you define kind of what it is to live within your means and what the heck is a budget? Yep. Yeah, I mean, so I, I thought that you covered what a budget is uh, pretty well in the, the prior episode. Um, but at a, a high level, it's pretty much what you said. Uh, understanding what you have coming in, which is your income. Understanding what you have going out or your expenses. And ideally, right, income minus expenses is a positive number or money that you have left over. Um, but also, like you, s you said, I would definitely recommend including a pay yourself first as a line item in your expenses to ensure that you can continue to save money on a regular basis. And I think if you're doing those things, you're living within your means. So living within your means is, is exactly what it sounds like. If you make this budget, and a budget is simply what do you make minus what you what your financial obligations are, rent, car payment, electricity, paying yourself as a line item. If all of that subtracted out of your income comes out to a number in the black, a positive number, then that's living within your means. Yeah, I would say that's living within your means. And, you know, y people can, can look at, their income and expenses where it is today and they can also set targets or goals you know and say i want to be making 
X amount. I want to be spending Y amount. Um, look at specific line items or whatever it is on, on your expenses and, and set goals for that. You know, I mean, in my day job, we often look at budgets. We do forecasts and and then we see, all right, how are we actually performing against that? And if we performed better, why? If we performed worse, what happened? You know, and so just kind of getting an understanding over time of those trends, right, and how things are going and, and why you're meeting, exceeding or not meeting your goals kind of helps you to understand more of what's going on and what changes you can make. So an example of that in a personal life could be, hey, look, I've got my budget. I've got all my income lined out. I've got all my expenses lined out. And the number is a positive number. But every month I seem to be in the negative. I seem to be borrowing. And so to your point, why are we not meeting our goals? Well, it's because every Friday night and Saturday night you go and drop $130 at the bar. So that 260 bucks a week that you're dropping over at the, you know, at drinks for people you're never going to see in three yep. years or whatever. Hey, maybe, maybe we cut back there. So that's the analysis and looking at the trends. And I actually think that a lot of financial institutions now offer some sort of like pie chart. Like, hey, here's your bank account. Here's where your money's going. Yep. Do you think that's a good tool for people to utilize? Yeah, actually, I've, I mean, I've, I've been using that because... All the information, what I spend on a debit card, credit card, or whatever, and what's coming out of my checking account and what's going into my savings, that's all in there and available. And it just auto-feeds into this tool that kind of says, you know, here's what I'm spending on housing. Here's what I'm spending on food. Here's what I'm spending on entertainment. It buckets those things um, and gives you a good trend view, you know, over time. Is that going up? Is that going down? Is it peaking at certain times of the year? You know? Oh, good point. Yeah. Of course, you know, around holiday uh, holiday season, <laughs> you know, you might expect things to peak, but um, just kind of getting an understanding of the ups and downs during the course of a year helps you to to plan ahead. So, on that that budget that that you talked about, if somebody works a job where they make a salary and they have the potential for a bonus, or if somebody's working as a waitress where they might make a lesser hourly rate because the expectation is they're going to get paid on tips, how would somebody's budget look? Let's do the salary plus bonus first. Would you recommend on a budget to include that bonus amount? Or would you say, hey, look, whatever that is, just stick with your salary for your budget and anything bonus is kind of extra? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely take the more conservative approach when it comes to that, um, because a bonus is something that's that's variable, and there might be a year when you don't receive a bonus at all, right? So how do you how do you bank on that? Um, so I would definitely recommend sticking with what you know is coming in the door, and managing your budget off of that, and then if you get a bonus, great, right? Now you have extra money you can take some of it you can put it into a savings account retirement or spend it on a vacation right take a nice trip somewhere yeah. right reward yourself for yeah. the bonus money that you earned exactly. what about the the let's just say a, a somebody who serve a server who is less hourly rate and may, you know banks a lot basically on their tips how would somebody like that do a budget right yeah i mean you probably need to look 
over some period of time and say three months, six months or whatever, how much did I make on average? Um, because tips also, it, it can be somewhat difficult to know how much you're going to get, but you can probably figure out, you know, what is the average level over some period of time uh, of what you have coming in. Um, and then use that as sort of your, your baseline for, you know, I know now on average I have this take-home pay, and then you can start to set certain things. So if I, if I have that amount, uh, generally I, of my take-home pay, I only want to pay no more than a third on housing. You know, I want to I take 10% and save it. And, and set percentages against that sort of average amount. But, you know, hopefully a person working in that profession has a good sense of, you know, what are the peak times? Uh, COVID, COVID is something oh that gosh, came yeah. up, right? And, and can be unexpected. Um, so it, that, that, can, that can be another, another factor. But um, in, in sort of, quote unquote, normal times, just getting some sort of comfort level for what what's coming in. So average it over the time. Don't don't expect, hey, you know, oh, well, on a good night, I take home 100 bucks in tips. Well, th yep. that's in a good night. What, what's a bad night look like? So maybe plan for and budget on a quote unquote bad night every night for six months. And what does that look like? And yep. maybe set your budget off of that. And then on those good nights, well, hey, now you're that much further into the black or into the positive and you are better set up to either save or if you feel like you worked hard and you want to treat yourself, there's absolutely nothing wrong, right? Going back to that mental health thing, yep. there's nothing wrong with treating yourself every once in a while. Absolutely. Cool. I imagine that first step to, to financial well-being would be to establish a budget. And I know we've talked a little bit about that, but how could someone establish a budget and what factors should be considered beyond what we've already talked about? Yep. So also, as you mentioned in the prior episode, I mean, someone can establish a budget using anything from a napkin to an Excel spreadsheet or anything in between. Right. Yeah, I'm a massive nerd, so it's all computers and formulas for there me. There you go. Um, but but really just start out by writing down your income and expenses and to get an accurate assessment of your expenses. One thing I think is helpful is to differentiate between fixed and variable expenses so fixed expenses or anything like a car payment or rent or a mortgage payment, uh, generally those don't fluctuate month to month. Variable expenses are where you might have some more immediate opportunity to make adjustments. And that's generally behavior driven. I mean, you mentioned the example of somebody going to, to a bar or, you know, another example, if, if you look at your spending and you notice I'm just eating out a lot, try grocery shopping. Right. right. So I'll give you a personal example. I am currently every month paying for a, uh, a massage envy account mm -hmm. and it's because I'm old. I, I need, I need a massage like once a month, but over these last few months I have been more active and my body hasn't screamed at me. Hey, you need to go get a massage. So that actually is something that has been on my mind. Hey, that's a fixed or, or it's a variable. It's a fixed amount, but it's something I'm choosing to do. It's not in contract. It could become a variable in the sense that I could just say no to the fixed monthly cost and then go when I need it. Yeah. So then, yeah, okay, now the massage instead of $65, now maybe it's 
$85, but instead of going every month, I'm going every third month. So in the long run, I could be saving money there. That's a little bit of a personal example, yeah. potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you look at those things, and then on the fixed side, you know, I would recommend, I mean, it's not that those things can't change, um, but maybe you do an annual assessment, look at all your fixed expenses. What am I paying on a car? What am I paying on the mortgage? As I mentioned, interest rates are low, right? Do I have an opportunity to refinance at a lower rate? Um, with the car, do I really need the fancy car that I have? You know, it, just taking a look at your personal situation and assessing what are my fixed expenses? What am I paying for insurance? And seeing if there's opportunities to do something there as well. But more immediately, you, you generally have an opportunity for uh, to, to adjust your, your variable expenses. Um, so th th those are the factors that I would consider. Making so it's interesting that you bring up insurance because, and I've been guilty of this, I just get like, hey, this is my insurance company. This is just what I pay. And every year my rate goes up by anywhere between 3 and 10%. And the way I see that or used to see that was, well, that's just, you know, that's just inflation. That's just inflation. But it's been brought to my attention that insurance companies, obviously, they're, they're a business and they're in business to make money, right? And they are constantly, very much like you are looking at, rates and things like that, they're looking at risk and they're doing risk assessment, sometimes hourly, depending on what the situation is and where, what location it is. And in that assessment, if they find that there's a, an area that is almost overdue for something, they'll start raising rates in anticipation of an event that would then cause a bunch of claims to come in, whether it's a hailstorm or an earthquake or something like that. So for, for people out there who maybe have been with the same insurance company for 10 or 12 years, or maybe you're just starting out, maybe you've only been with your insurance company for two or three years and your rates have maybe gone up, I have found that shopping around for different insurance, or well, I say different insurance, different insurance providers mm -hmm. has actually benefited me greatly. Yep. Yep. I've done the same thing. Um because if, if everyone just stayed with their current provider forever, then what would happen? You know, they could they could raise rates with impunity. So, right. Um, I, I think it's a good idea to just take a look at what your options are. So something I I use my birthday as kind of a a reset, right? Hey, let's look at the budget. There's a lot of other things that I do on my birthday too, but that's my annual thing, not January 1st, because there's so much other stuff that goes on with the typical changing of the seasons or changing of the year or whatever that is. There's a lot of stuff, especially coming right out of the holidays, and that's not when I have the wherewithal to sit down and look at a budget, because I'm just going to be saddened when I see, you know, oh gosh, what did holidays do to me this year, you know? So I actually use my birthday as an opportunity to sit down and kind of take stock on certain things and reassess certain things. And maybe that's something that other people can do is use their birthday instead yep. of what the calendar says every year. Maybe use that. Absolutely. Also check your smoke detector batteries on your birthday too. If nothing else, just make yourself a little note, check smoke detector. It's not what you want to do. You don't want to work on your birthday, but that's definitely worth it. Continuing on, I mentioned in episode six that I believe there is a such thing as good debt. And, and before people start losing their mind, I, what I don't mean by that is I don't mean it's good to be in debt. What I mean is it can be good to have 
an, a financial obligation to establish credit, I guess is the best way I can describe that. Do you, you what, What's your take on good debt versus bad debt? Because I've heard everybody wants to get that hot take on the news or, or they want to get that, that thing on YouTube ad that gets your attention. What's your take on good debt versus bad debt? Yep. So I definitely think it's good to differentiate between the two. Uh, so to me, a good debt is generally if you're financing something that the underlying value of the asset or whatever it is that you're financing is is likely to increase over time, right? So examples are a home loan or an education loan. The value of what you're financing, I mean, I, I can tell you that taking out student loans for me um, made a lot of sense when I went back and, and got my uh, MBA and that has greatly increased my earnings potential over time. So that's an example of what I would consider good debt. Uh, I'll say it's definitely possible to take out a bad loan, right, on a good underlying asset. Take the 2008 financial crisis as a good example of that. Good point. Um, so it's always important to understand, you know, what are the terms of the loan that you're accepting? So. Don't just take it that if I'm financing a house, that is good debt. Make sure that you also understand what you're accepting and, and how it's actually working. All right, I'll pause right there for yep. you. Terms, loan terms. Oftentimes, now, <laughs> I'll get a little personal here. Put my wine down. I have been through a lot of new cars, like a lot of new cars. I carried a lot of negative equity. So basically what that means for the listeners is, the money that I owed on the vehicle was more than what the vehicle's value was when I traded it in or sold it. So I still owed after I sold it. Yeah. So that's negative. You were underwater. Yeah, I was underwater, exactly. Um, and w what I started doing when I first started this journey of mine of buying new vehicles, um, and, and for all the psychologists out there, yes, there's an underlying reason for that. Yes, I know what it is. Of course, I'm past it now. I've, I've moved on. I don't actually have any new vehicles anymore. But anyway, um, I found that I was looking at, and this is what the salespeople are, are basically trained to do, is they say, well, what are you willing to pay per month? And they're not going to they're not going to lose any damn money on this deal, right? They're going to sell you a vehicle and very likely something else that the manufacturer is pushing, and they're going to make their money on it. So what that means is when they say, well, what are you comfortable paying per month? Well, realistically, I'm comfortable paying 300 bucks a month. Guess what? They're going to find you something that allows you to pay about 320 a month because they're never going to meet your needs. They're going to go about 320 And what that could mean potentially, and this was funny. So I had a, uh, I had a Jeep and as one of my vehicles. And the Jeep, they were trying to get me into an 84-month uh, term loan on the vehicle which is seven years, I think, if I did that math right. Seven years is a long time to pay money on a vehicle. I mean, that's a long time. And realistically, what's that vehicle going to be worth at the end? And, and what they say is, well, yeah, well, it lowers your monthly payment. Yes, but it usually jacks up your interest rate because it's a longer, it's a higher risk loan, right? Because it's longer term, more time for you to default on it. And all that does is make them more money. And so that is a great point. Consider the term of the loan, right? And don't necessarily think that, well, a 30-year fix is all I have available to me or an 84-month loan on a Dodge pickup truck or something like that. Just take a look at that and don't get suckered into to that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and so 
speaking about we talked a little bit about what good debt is. So bad debt would kind of be the inverse of that. This is just one way to think of it. Anything where the underlying value of what you're financing is likely to decrease, which means that a car could be considered bad debt. Um, now, I'm not saying don't finance a car, right? Cars are necessary for a lot of people. Um, I'm just saying that, you know, cars depreciate, some cars depreciate faster than others. So a person just, I would recommend doing your research, understand what you're buying and the terms of the loan. But it's also, I think, important to understand what you value. So if you're a person who really values cars, if that's the one thing that you give yourself a little bit of leeway on, and I'm willing to splurge on that, well, then that might not be bad debt for you. That might be something that you are financing that means a lot to you. You know, one person's bad debt could be another person's good debt. And so that's that's something that I would mention there. And then one other thing I wanted to mention about credit cards, because I know you touched I'm on glad this. You, yes, I'm glad you brought this up, because this, this is where you started. This is where you this got is, your... It was my first show. This is your yep, first bite cards. of the apple, yeah. I, right. I, I, I'm glad you brought it up, because if you didn't, I was going to. So let's hear it. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, as you previously mentioned, credit cards are considered generally bad debt, right? Um, to a bank or a creditor, they are viewed as more risky. They're revolving lines of credit. They are unsecured for the most part, not secured by like a home or a, or a car. Meaning um, there's no, if you default on it, right. there's nothing that the bank could take. Exactly. Because it's just a piece of plastic. Yep. But I will say that they can be an effective tool for building credit. Um, so in my opinion, if someone utilizes credit cards well, I mean, you can do things like build rewards, cash back, travel, or whatever, without paying interest and still building credit. And so how do you do that? You know, you find a car that you like, um, generally maybe one without an annual fee, so you're not paying an annual fee every single year, uh, and, and put expenses on it like gas and groceries, right? And then pay it off at the end of each month. Things you're already budgeting for in your line. Exactly. There's a line item for that in your budget already. Yep. It's just I mean, instead of coming directly out of the bank account, yep. it's coming off the credit card. Yep. You got to eat. So you're going to buy groceries. If you have a car, you need gas, things that you're already going to spend money on. Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> I just threw a monkey wrench in the whole argument. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, and you can earn points, but you pay it off at the end of the month. Pay no interest, but you're building a credit history. The longer your credit history is, the better. Um, but another factor is if you show that you are responsible with, something that is a little bit more risky like a credit card that's also looked at favorably so it can it can actually really help that's i mean that's a way that you can turn bad debt quote unquote into good debt okay so bad debt in the sense that to your point it's it's unsecured that if if you defaulted on it they're coming for you they're not coming for the car that you borrowed money against but good in the sense that if done responsibly it establishes credit now let me go even more basic why? Why do we need credit? I'm I'm a I'm an NFL player. I make six million dollars in my first three years. I can buy my house with cash. Why do I need credit? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, in the case of some of those NFL players, right? That that cash may not last. Um, if if you want to purchase something in the future, but you don't want to pay cash, 
no matter what it is, someone's going to want some measure of determining how reliable you are and how responsible you are in paying back a loan, right? And without building credit, which, you know, right or wrong, we could debate whether this is the best system or not, but it's a system that we have um, here in the U.S., right? Right or wrong, it is the way that companies, and not just companies, um, it could be landlords for people who are trying to get, you know, uh, rent an apartment, or it could be an insurance company when you're trying to get insurance, and it could be if you're trying to go for a job, right? It's just a measure that people use to determine someone's reliability and responsibility. That's a great point. Now, you you bring up a good, because all I was thinking was financial, you know, loans and things like that when it comes to credit, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, medical stuff sometimes looks at credit, which I don't necessarily agree with, but to your point, it's, it's, it's the thing that we have here in the U.S., uh, landlords, fantastic point as well, right? They want to know, hey, yeah, I'm not lending you money, but I'm expecting money every month for a service that's provided, or in this case, housing, um, and, and other things. Sometimes even employers look at your credit score to determine how trustworthy you might uh, you might be as well. Um, something else that I am a very guarded person when it comes to certain personal information. There are certain things that I don't care about, but there are some things that I guard very closely, and my credit, my Social Security number, is is absolutely one of those things for many reasons. But the one thing that gets me is when the cell phone company asks me, or the cable company, well, what's, what's your Social Security? We're going to run a credit check on you. No, don't run a credit check on me. You're absolutely not getting my Social Security number institutions like that, and quite frankly, any institution, has a vulnerability if they store that information. And I would rather pay an extra five bucks a month or have to put a down payment on whatever or pay an activation fee if it means not running my credit. So that's just my where I I'm not saying it's right sure. or wrong. I'm just saying for me, there are absolutely some things where credit is is absolutely necessary, but there are some things where even if I have the best credit in the whole wide world and it's going to be zero money down, I don't trust the institution necessarily with that information, so I will pay a little bit out of pocket for it. That's just something. Kind of off topic, but still kind of Personal preference. Yep. Absolutely. For debt in general, whether it's a mortgage or a vehicle or student loans like you talked about, or the revolving credit that we just discussed, what are some strategies that people could use to get out from under this debt as quickly as possible? I've heard different things. I've heard terms like avalanche or snowball and different things. Like what, what are some techniques or strategies that people could use? Yep. So, yeah, I know that you've mentioned some of these. Um, but, yeah, you could start by paying your highest interest rate uh, debt first, you know, while making the minimum payments and all your other debt. Always make sure <laughs> yeah, that don't, you're don't, don't not pay something. <laughs> exactly. just to pay something. Always make sure you're actually the 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 single largest factor in someone's credit score is making payments on time. So that's thirty five percent of your credit score. Um, so make sure that you, at a minimum, make your minimum payments um, and start with your highest interest uh, in this particular strategy. Another strategy is what you sort of mentioned, the snowball method. So that's where you start out by paying the debt with the lowest balance first, 
right. lowest balance, not lowest. lowest balance. Okay, gotcha. Yep. So just as an example, say I owe two thousand dollars on my car loan, ten thousand dollars on my student loans, right? My car loan is at a lower interest rate, two point nine nine percent. Student loans at four point nine nine percent. I'm just making these up. Mm-hmm. Um, I could focus on eliminating my car loan first since it's closer to being paid off and then redirect all payments that I was making on the car loan to my student loans once the car has been paid off. So that's the snowball. Um, And I would say the last strategy, and there may be others, is uh, consolidation. So I know you talked a little bit about this. Yeah, and this is an area where I I didn't have a lot of of insight or, or really any experience with, which is why I'm glad you're here. But my understanding of that was kind of what I talked about on the episode, and I'm excited to hear what you say about this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple options, and I'm just going to give a couple of examples. So from a credit card standpoint, right, if you have three credit cards, and let's say you're paying interest on each of them, uh, and you can consolidate into one with a 0% rate for a period of time, like 12 months or 18 months, that may be worth it. Now, you generally will pay what's called a balance transfer fee. So you have to factor that in. Um, but it, it may be worth it if you can pay off that full consolidated balance while the 0% interest is in effect, right? If you can't do that, it may not be worth it. So you have to kind of figure out, you know, can I pay that balance? But there's other consolidation options as well. So, for example, you know, an equity line. Uh, generally, an equity line has a lower interest rate because it's secured by a house, or a home, um, and you could use that to consolidate other higher interest rate debt. You know, you could consolidate student loans. You could consolidate your credit card debt all into your equity line and then just make one monthly payment, right, at a lower interest rate. Um, so all sorts of, and I know in the, the episode that you talked about, you know, these different organizations. I mean, I I agree. I think that you just need to understand what is your personal situation, do your research, um, because done in the wrong way could really, you know, if you're still in in a situation where you can continue to make payments and not default on the debt, you know, because sometimes they, these organizations, they may say, hey, we'll negotiate and lower your rate, but really what they're doing is saying, look, you're not to the bank or the creditor. You're not going to get the full amount. You might get pennies on the dollar for what this person owes. So let's negotiate a payment plan. But that will come with severe impacts in some cases to someone's credit and someone's ability to get that in the future. So, you know, kind of assess whether you can continue making payments before going down the route of, you know, negotiating uh, a lower balance effectively by having the bank or whoever write off a portion of the balance because that that could severely hurt your credit. So to kind of recap, a couple strategies are uh, highest interest rate first or uh, the snowball method, which is lowest overall amount still owed, principal amount still owed. Yep. And then the other one would be, to your point, maybe con- debt consolidation, mm-hmm. especially if you have a 0% or, or a lower interest rate option, something like a 0% card, credit card, or a line of credit, an equity, um, something like that. And then what you're saying is 
if you can make payments, even if it's tough, if you can get it done, you're typically better off even just making minimum payments and getting done what you can get done. It's going to be better on your credit than something else where this company negotiates on your behalf. I mean, it will certainly be better on your credit if you can make the payments. Um, But, you know, everyone's situation is different. So I would really just take time, look at your situation. If you're in a severe financial hardship, you know, maybe you can't make the payments. Maybe you do have to negotiate a lower, you know, maybe the bank agrees to cut your debt in half and lower the interest rate. You know, Um, I'm not necessarily uh, just be aware that will hurt your credit. Mm -hmm. Um, Making payments on time helps your credit. Um, But everyone's situation is different. So people just have to figure out where they stand and, and what's best for them for the future. Would you say, and I know this exists with student loans, and unfortunately I didn't know it existed with student loans when I had student loans, which wasn't very much. It was a long time ago, let's be completely honest, but payment deferrals, having the ability to work with a, a, a lending institution and say, look, man, it just ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. What can you do? Can you work with me? Is that something that still exists outside of student loans, educational uh whatever balances things like that it's my understanding that it does still exist um and when you do a payment deferral that's not going to hurt your credit uh because it's a it's an agreement you're not lowering the overall balance and in fact you're still earning interest compounding the interest right paying interest i guess um but no that is possible and one other thing that I'll mention, you know, through this whole COVID crisis, there's a lot of people who had deferrals on their mortgage payments, right? So there's there's times when someone can take advantage of deferrals without impacting their credit negatively. But again, as with anything else, just be aware of, you know, what, you know, you would want to know, I'm still paying interest or what are any potential negative impacts to doing the deferral. Just understand the terms. You understand how it works. Good to know. Good to know. And that's, like I said, that was something that I didn't know until long after the fact. And it didn't hurt me for a long time. Now let's, let's talk about this. Let's say somebody does have something negative on their credit, uh, a missed payment. One missed payment is not going to be a huge deal is my understanding of the long term. But obviously, many in a row is going to be a big deal in the long term. How long does it take for something to uh, purge itself from your credit report so that lenders or potential lenders don't see that information anymore? Yep. So it's generally seven years. Um, People can dispute things on their credit report. And if you dispute something... And the counterparty, whether it's a, a business or credit creditor or bank or whatever, um, doesn't respond, and I think it's within 30 days, then the credit agency has to take that off of your credit file. So there's ways to go about disputing things, but you know, generally I would dispute things that you truly believe are inaccurate. Right. Um, but if something is accurate, you know, you just defaulted on whatever. Um, generally takes seven years for that to come off your credit. Good to know. Good to know. So stay on top of your payments, even if all you can make are the bare minimums. Do your best to stay on top and 
budget and plan for a way out. That's right. I like it. Episode 7 talked all about saving for retirement. We've already alluded to it a couple times. In your opinion, what priority should this take? When should someone start to save for their inevitable retirement? And how much should they save? So three things there. What priority, when should they start, and how much should they save? Yep. So I think you hit the nail on the head in in episode seven. Um, I think it's a top priority. I would start immediately or as soon as possible. Um, The only time I would say don't begin immediately is if someone has no savings at all for emergencies, no emergency fund. But assuming they do, they should begin as soon as possible. And simply that's because, like you mentioned, the the power of compound interest really cannot be overstated. Um, so I would I would actually recommend people go back and listen to episode seven if they haven't heard it because in that episode you provided several examples which I thought were good to illustrate how compound interest works. Uh, but the key idea there is the earlier you start saving for retirement, the more you are allowing your money to to make money, right? Make money for you. The longer someone waits, the more they have to contribute per paycheck to make up for lost time, right? So it's just you can contribute less early on and allow that compound interest to work for you so you don't have to contribute more. Um, But as far as how much they should do, as much as they can, right? You know, if you create a budget uh, and you sort of have everything covered, um, the whatever you have left over, you know, I mean, I would carve out a piece of your budget to go to retirement anyways, but anything else that you have left over, I would put it there as well, just because of of the power of compound interest up to the limits, right? There are certain limits like you, like you mentioned. Yeah. In the United States specifically, there are limits that the the federal government allows you to contribute pre-tax, at least pre-tax right now, because they'll get you later. There's a reason that there's a limit because it's so powerful. So that's a good point. You're right. I didn't consider that. Now, to be fair, in episode seven, all I was doing, and I actually prefaced this in the episode, I said, you know, hey, when, when my roommate and I were sitting down talking over a couple beers, we, we started mentioning it, and you were very passionate about it, and I'm very, very thankful for that. Uh, but yeah, man, we had a couple beers in ourselves, and you started talking about it, and I was like, you know what, actually, I kind of want to, I kind of want to hear, not right now, we're, we're drinking, right, but let's <laughs> l- later on, l- talk right. to me about this. And we sat down, and you were the person who got me started on a 401k. Up until that point, I did not have a 401k because my thought was, well, shoot, I'm 22. I've got plenty of time. I've got 40 damn years before I even have to think about retirement. I'm going to make plenty of money between now and then. And you were like, no, dude, sit down. Let me run some numbers by you. And basically all I did in episode seven was exactly what you did to me. You sat me down. You said, look, if you contribute a small percentage now, it grows into this huge number by the time you're ready to retire. But if you wait until you're 30, you can contribute more. It's not going to be anywhere close to that number. And I wanted to illustrate that to the listeners in episode seven. And all I was doing was, it's stolen valor is all it is. All I did was take what you the conversation you had, and I just became you in that. So yeah. all the credit goes to you, man. Well, I mean, I learned it from somewhere too. So we're just passing it on. Th- and that's that's the whole idea of this, is, is yeah. everybody learns something and unfortunately i learned a lot of things much later so uh yeah that was perfect well good i'm glad to know that that what we sat down and talked about all those years ago 
number one hasn't changed because I've been doing exactly that. Um, but also number two, it, it's it's not any different in the sense of the world hasn't changed to a point where your your investment allocation in terms of percentage of income has changed or, or would need to change. Now, obviously, portfolio things, that's a whole nother topic that's kind of, we're at a 30,000 foot view right now as right. we start getting into portfolio allocations and, and small cap versus mid cap and all that kind of stuff. And ugh, God, we could really get into stuff. So, well, good. Perfect. Let's imagine then, let's let's use our time machine, and let's imagine that we're talking to a person. Let's just use me. I'll, I'll be the guinea pig for this. Uh, and uh, so this person, me, I'm just out of school. I'm just starting in the workforce. Uh, let's assume that I get paid every other week and that I make about thirty grand a year, and I'm going to be living with a roommate. Hey, this sounds kind of familiar, right? <laughs> in an apartment, just like we were, of course. What does that budget look like? What could that budget look like for that person? And let's assume that thirty thousand is salary. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, person making thirty thousand a year. Now, I found this online. So, it's just to mention that there are all sorts of budgets and tips for saving money to find online. So, this is really just one example, but anyone could use this as sort of a template and adapt it to their situation. So, on a thirty thousand dollar budget. Uh, or salary, uh, we're assuming an average take-home pay after taxes on a monthly basis of about 1983 um, and that would fluctuate depending on what state you live in, how much you pay in taxes, so that was actually at the, the lower end. So the federal income tax rate is, do you happen to know that off the top of your head, federal income tax? I mean, it depends on the bracket that you're Oh, in. yeah, great yep. point, yep, 19% up to what, 36, 38 right now, whatever it is. Yeah, I would, I would tell someone to look online because <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. I would also say that that's a, you talked about fixed versus variable. I think that's a moving target. Uh, that's right. It, it can with, change. With political change. climates and, and administrations, yeah, that, that number can definitely change. Okay, so online, budgets, yep. Yep, so, um, so of the 1983, which is the take-home pay monthly after taxes, uh, the breakdown, so if you took a third of that, that's $660, so that could be a gauge for how much you would pay for a place to live. 10% um, to savings, that's $198. We're, I'm assuming car transportation expenses around 250 Car insurance, $100. Health insurance, $100. Cell phone, $50. Internet, $50. Gas, Sixty dollars, uh, groceries, food, a hundred, uh, other personal or miscellaneous expenses, a hundred, uh, entertainment, fifty, and that would taking all that out, that would leave you left over two hundred sixty-four dollars, uh, which you know could be allocated across any of those other buckets. So if you're like, you know what, a hundred dollars, I eat more than that, put more in your food budget, you know, but you can sort of use this as a guide and then start moving things around you know almost use it as a template and then pull your expenses over the last three months or whatever and say all right how much am i actually spending and then you know like we talked about earlier look at where can i make some changes like where am i willing to make some changes to sort of align with this budget 
Um, but you notice that after living, the first thing in there is saving. Right. So. So it, it's interesting, too, and I think that I, I was guilty of this for a long time. I would get caught up in the budget equals zero. And what I mean by that is, hey, so I budget everything. I got $264 left over a month. Well, that means I have $264 I can go spend. Hey, all right, let's go to the bar. Let's go to whatever. Let's go to Dave and Buster's and play some video games or, or whatever. And to your point, 100 bucks in a month for food, I mean, that's $25 a week. That's not a whole lot of money to, to eat. So you're definitely not going and getting a coffee in the morning at a coffee shop. You're going to have to learn to cook because, and, and it kind of goes to skills. Skills can save you money. And and we'll kind of see that over the course of what I have planned over the next year is for podcast episodes is skills can save you money and obviously help others in the long term as well. Learning to cook can save you a ton because it means you go get the raw ingredients. So yep. realistically, if you think about if you're eating out, what are you paying for? Why is that? pasta meal so expensive it's because you're paying somebody else for the labor and the time and the resources to make that food including the server and everything because you don't do dishes after that right so it goes from everything from procuring the supplies to doing the dishes and that's really what you're paying for you're paying for that so yeah 264 dollars left over there was a period of time where i was like hey i got that money to spend but i think it's important to mention that a budget is not a net zero thing Mm -hmm. you want to come out if you think back to rollover minutes right let's date ourselves for a minute here if you think back to rollover minutes the idea was hey how many of these can i bank up so that when it comes time in the summer when all my friends from college go back home i can call them and i can talk to them on the phone during the day because nights and weekends are free right nine to nine and that kind of thing so it's important to know that if you can bank enough of these 264 dollars or at least as much of that as possible that's going to set you up for the holidays for buying gifts because that's not a line item in this budget. Exactly. Yep. Now, let me ask you this, because I also talked about it in episode seven. Putting money away to a traditional 401k pre-tax, if you put $100 into your 401k pre-tax, doesn't necessarily mean you're taking home $100 less post ta- or in your paycheck, right? Cuz because obviously your paycheck is taxed on what your taxable income is and pre-tax dollars are taken out of that, like health insurance and 401k stuff. Do you agree with that? How does that look? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I remember you mentioning that and um to be honest, that's not something that I had really thought about before. Um So, I mean, $100 coming out is $100. It's $100 less that you're not being taxed on. Yeah, I don't know. I would have to and then it might lower your tax bracket. Right. So it might take you from a, a 24% tax bracket to a 19% tax bracket or a 22 or whatever it is. Because yeah. that's kind of where I was going yeah. on that. And I might have been drawn off some personal some personal experience with that one. Yeah. I'll say with the with the taxes, I know that it's good to do the 401k and other pre-tax things, but I'm not definitely not the best with uh, with taxes. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's something we've struggled with too. And 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 I guess now is the best time. Of course, we probably should have done it at the beginning. But 
we are by not we're not telling you what to do with your finances. We're offering right. some opinions. We're offering some suggestions. We're offering some examples, hypothetical examples. I encourage folks, and I, I mentioned it in those episodes, to go seek a financial Absolutely. advisor because, to your yep. point, everybody's scenario is going to be so specific. Yep. And I'm sure you kind of fall. I mean, you were a personal banker for a while, and that's kind of some things that I'm sure you did for people. Yeah, yeah. I would I would have to sit down and and ask people, you know, what's going on in your life, what events are coming up, what's important to you, you know, and where are you in your financial life? Have you built credit? All those sorts of things. Do you have a savings? Um, and it was not really to sell people. It was because everybody has to do this, you know, money impacts everybody. So just trying to help people make decisions based on where they are. Yeah. Well, let's move on and age a little bit here. Let's um, let's now talk to someone who may have a house or a vehicle or family or, or maybe all of those. How could someone financially cope with emergencies and other things that might come up, like a trip to the hospital or a flat tire on a car? What, what are some things that people can do to set themselves up so they don't go into that bad debt like we talked about before? Yep. So, you know, someone a little bit more advanced, uh, I would expect that person to, to have an emergency savings account already. So I'm already making that assumption. Um, well, let's let's not make that assumption for a second. So so let's say you're 22, you want to build an emergency savings. So by the time you do have a house and a family and a car, you've got it. What would you say that emergency savings account would look like? And everybody is different, but for the situation for a person who does have a house, a vehicle, and a family, uh-huh. what does that what does that emergency account look like? Does it look like a thousand dollars? Does it look like a ten thousand dollars? What does that look like? So generally, it's recommended to have three months of your, let's say, take-home salary, what you are using um, on, on, a, on a monthly basis after taxes saved as an emergency savings account. So I would just use that as sort of a, sort of a gauge. Okay, so three months. Perfect. So whatever your salary is, take home in three months. Not like, hey, I make hundred grand a year, therefore, right. well, actually, 120 would be an easier math. Yeah. Hey, I don't need 30 grand in this thing. Yep. I actually need 30 grand less taxes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this emergency account, whatever that looks like. Um, what, what can we do to financially cope with these emergencies? Yeah, I mean, so beyond that, I'm going to go back to insurance. <laughs> I'm going to say Great point. I'm going to say make good use of insurance, home insurance, health insurance, even life insurance. Um, you know, we a lot of people don't think about life insurance, but so understanding your coverage levels, how much you're paying, like we talked about, shop around. Um, definitely make sure that you work with reputable insurance companies that will actually come through if and when there's an emergency. And I know this from experience, you know, I know you know the story. Um, we we had a, a leak under our kitchen sink, right? Next thing we know, we had mold under the kitchen floor that in the crawl space, we didn't know it was there. They had to come tear everything out, bring in these machines to dry everything up. 
and we had no idea what was going to happen. But for us, our insurance company did come through. Uh, six months later, we essentially found ourselves with a new kitchen. And not only did our insurance company pay the estimated cost of what it, it would have been to replace everything as it was, and that's generally what they'll do, is they'll come in and they'll say, here is our estimate. If we were to rip everything out and rebuild it exactly like it is today, insurance adjuster will estimate that and give you a check or whatever. You know, that's just an example um, uh, in specifically what happened in our situation. But not only did they do that, but they also reimbursed us while we didn't have access to our kitchen for all of our food expenses over that six-month period. So all we had to do was submit our food receipts to them and they reimbursed us for that. So I never thought that I would use my homeowner's insurance, right? But having the right coverage, and that all worked out because we did have the right coverage, um, and we worked with a good company. And I actually, you know, yeah, it was it was a recommendation from somebody. But doing doing the research, I mean, it really, really paid off, and uh, helped us get through an emergency situation that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to pay for. So it's worth noting that the cost per month, and I would say this goes for basically anything in life, you really do get what you pay for in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot. Therefore, hey, that cheapo insurance, whether it's car insurance or health insurance or whatever, is cheap for a reason. Right. You know, and, and in the case of health insurance, usually there's a couple options and typically it's going to be the total the, the out of pocket cost is going to be the same for the really expensive one or the really cheap one. It's just are you going to come out of pocket when it happens and, and basically gamble that it's not going to happen or are you going to come out of pocket and basically finance that total out of pocket cost to yourself? Um, and it sounds like you did the same thing. You shopped around not necessarily for the cheapest price or the best price, but you shopped around for customer service, for reliability, yeah. for reputation, and all the that. And it, service, yeah. And it paid off dividends in the yeah. long run. Or I say long run. It was actually pretty quick, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, this was back in 2017. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's we would not have been able to do it ourselves. Yeah. So you're right. Insurance. I mean, coping with emergencies – if you get a flat tire on the side of the road, hey, you might have vehicle insurance that includes roadside assistance right. coverage. Yep. So you don't have to call the tow truck yourself or call AAA or maybe you're a member of AAA. Hey, great. But your car insurance might do that. Or if you buy a new car, I, I know for Toyota, for instance, Toyota Care is like 36,000 miles or whatever. You get you get roadside assistance. It's included in the purchase price of the vehicle. I say included. Built into the purchase price sure, of the vehicle. Sure. That's a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's an option as well, yeah. And people overlook that. Yep, absolutely. Great, great point. See, this is why I bring you on, because you offer the insight that I just can't give or I wouldn't think about because it's not what I do. Glad to have you. I like it. Glad to be here. All right, so as we begin to wrap things up, I was wondering what, in your opinion, obviously with your expertise personally, but also professionally and through your volunteer work, what is something that is often overlooked when it comes to finances that could have a long-term impact, whether it's a positive impact or a negative impact on someone's financial well-being? Yep, so I'm going to continue a little bit along the insurance theme, a little bit different, um, but also going back to tax-saving strategies. 
so I think something like a health savings account is a good way to, to sort of cover both. So a health savings account is essentially a personal savings account where the funds are used exclusively for qualified medical expenses. Uh, but the account offers a triple tax advantage. So first you contribute to an HSA pre-tax, just like a 401k, uh, straight out of your paycheck. Secondly, any interest or investment earnings are tax-free. You can see all this online. You know, I'm not uh, offering investment advice here. This is just true of an <laughs> HSA account. You heard it from Bill first. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and you can invest money in an HSA and be in certain investment vehicles. And then thirdly, withdrawals are tax-free as long as the money goes towards qualified medical expenses. So that is a very, very powerful tool. Um, and like 401ks, there are limits to how much an individual or a family can contribute per year. So that just means the earlier you start, the more you can build in your HSA over time. Uh, but a tool like that will really allow you to stretch your retirement fund later on, your 401k or whatever, because um, it really means that you're going to be dipping into your HSA first before your 401k whenever you're covering medical expenses. So it's very, very effective tool. I Okay, so the first time I ever heard about an HSA was – my organization had open enrollment in like March or something. It was really weird. I don't know why we did that. But anyway, um, that was the first time I ever heard about an HSA. FSAs, you know, flexible spending accounts. I've heard about those, understood kind of what they were for. Uh, my family utilizes an FSA. Mm -hmm. But the HSA wasn't something I'd heard about. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because that was actually something I was going to ask you about offline. I say offline. Jesus, I'm way too corporate. Holy Christ. Um <laughs> I just, it's something that piqued my interest to the point where I was like, I need to learn more about that. What does that mean? So, okay, so an HSA, a, a health savings account, which is separate from a flexible spending account, mm -hmm. can be something else that will help you maximize tax, let's call them deferrals, because ultimately at the end of the day, you're going to pay tax, unless it's for a qualified medical expense. Um, you're going to pay tax on that stuff if you're using it toward like a retirement thing. But to your point, from an emergency stand thing, if you've got to go to the hospital for a car accident or something like that, that's something that I would think the HSA would help to cover the cost of. It would, yeah. Yeah. HSAs. So you got me thinking. I'm over here. Yeah, so, I mean, just qualified medical expenses, it's tax-free. Um, you know, and, and I, I have an HSA, so I use it now like a copayment, right? If I go to the doctor, it's not like I have to wait until I'm 65 years old to use the money. I just pull out my HSA card. They slide it like a debit or a credit card. Money comes out of my HSA and I could be asked for a receipt, you know, to prove that what I paid for was a qualified medical expense. Um, but all I have to do is ask my doctor, can you give me a receipt for this purchase? They provide the receipt. I provide it, you know, to whoever's asking and it's tax free. With that HSA, you mentioned you, you can earn interest on it. So it's an investment account of sources that money get invested somewhere. And if so, 
can I choose where how that money is allocated, like a portfolio standpoint? Yep. Yeah, you can. Boy. Yeah, yeah. You can invest it in like a, a mutual fund. And it's your decision how much you invest, what you invest in, what your allocation is. That's, you know, each person's decision. I know what I'm doing next enrollment period with my organization, HSA all the way. Cool. Is there anything else that you could think of? So, so that would be obviously be a positive impact. Is there anything that you had, any other examples that you wanted to share or anything you can think of? Um, just taking advantage of other, you know, I'm thinking of my own situation. I have to pay for parking, right? So that's, that's an expense for, for work. Um, but I can use something called wage works, which again, takes, it pays for parking out of my paycheck pre-tax. So yet another way to, to save money on that. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, other things like life insurance, you know, and it's not all about um, just the things that I can do for myself. You know, if I have a family and I want to make sure my family is taken care of and I want peace of mind that if something ever happened to me that they would be taken care of, look into life insurance. That could help the financial, the long term financial well-being of your family as well. I'm so glad you brought that up because this whole episode and, and quite frankly, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the person, right? The, wh- whoever we're talking to, their financial well-being. And that wasn't, it's obviously something I do. I have life insurance uh, through my organization um, a- as well as some other stuff. But it's one of those things that I don't want my family to not have a roof over their head or not have lights on or not have the health coverage that they need if something were to happen to me. You know, hopefully tragic. I mean, hopefully my wife sees it that way, right? Oh, it's a tragic thing. But uh, yeah, that's a great, great point. It's more financial well-being is setting yourself up so that you are not a burden on society. And society could mean the government. The society could mean your community, your close neighbors, or your family, loved ones, friends, whatever, right? If, if something happens to you, who's going to pay for your funeral expenses? Who's going to you know, do all that? You're, you make a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, any other closing thoughts or comments before we, uh, before we close this out? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, while bo- both you and, and I and we through this have, have tried to share about the importance of financial well-being, it doesn't mean much if people don't, you know, spend some of their own time looking into things, doing their research, making sure they understand the concepts and how they apply to their own lives and, and actually implement them. So I know that's exactly what, what you did, you know, after our first discussion, uh, I might have been like 10 years ago I or think, something. I think it was 11 years ago. 11 years ago. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I would just encourage other people to do the same thing. Um, and, you know, like I said, there's lots of things that you can find online. I mentioned bettermoneyhabits.com earlier, free videos and other materials. There's no shortage of information out there. So definitely just use it to your advantage and uh, let Toby know how his podcast help you get started. <laughs> I, I would love to hear stories, well, you know, g- good, bad or indifferent. I, I would love to hear the feedback. And that's something that like I mentioned before, you know, hey, look, if I could go back and talk to myself as a 22-year-old or 20-year-old or 19, these are the things I would tell myself. These are the experts or people with with knowledge 
that I w- and, and and understanding that's who I would bring in and and have talk to me right, yep. and to to for any of you who follow uh, the Smarter Everyday YouTube channel, I'll quote. I'll quote him and say that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I use this from a from a ham radio standpoint, right? Just because I have the knowledge to pass the test to be an FCC licensed amateur radio operator does not mean I have the understanding of how I'm going to go now build my own radio, right? And I would say it's the exact same thing with finances. Knowledge does not necessarily equal understanding. So while you may have hopefully gleaned some knowledge from this episode... That doesn't mean you understand how to apply it in your own personal situation, unique situation. So that's where those financial advisors can come in or uh, investment advisors, things like that. Those people are invaluable. And yeah, they cost money. Um, But if you're invested in a 401k, it's possible that the cost of meeting with one of those people is covered by just having an account with them. So that's something else to think about. Sure. Great point. Knowledge is not equal understanding and, and... Hopefully that's it. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to tap you, Bill, to send me a few of those links. I was taking some notes as we went along, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming out, for sitting with me, for having this discussion again, eleven years later, and uh, hopefully maybe we can help somebody else out who's just starting on their journey, or maybe is already on their journey. Yep. But there is one last question that I like to ask every guest, and and I'm interested to hear your response and if you are willing to share your story. This ep- this podcast, right, is is if we could go back and talk to ourselves younger. What is something that you learned later in life that had such a profound impact on you that you couldn't believe that you hadn't learned it earlier? What what was something like that for you? Yeah, I was thinking about that. The best example that I can that I can give is I didn't even know that I liked finance. <laughs> My, you know, growing up, I was not interested in math. I was not interested in business. I was not interested in finance. Um, I remember when I got to to my to school in college, my undergrad. They asked me, you know, what do I like or what do I what am I good at? And I said, well, I can read and write. And so they put me in an English major and. I, I can read and write. I love that. Yep. <laughs> here I am at my college. I got admitted. I'm here on my first day. What do you? Oh, I can yep. read and write. And four years later, um, you know, I went through the English major again. Didn't really take any business classes. Nothing like that. Uh, graduated. Started working at a bookstore, and then by a fluke, you know, my favorite manager at the bookstore got let go and started working at a bank. Uh, credit cards and I followed them and then that's when I realized wait a second I actually do like this um, I enjoyed learning about credit how you know how does a bank extend credit how can I build credit and and all of a sudden all that's that stuff took off and eventually I did go back to school because I realized what I actually wanted to do with my life and got my my MBA in finance, but it took me, you know, I don't even know how old I was, mid-20s or something like that, before actually realizing what I was good at, what I enjoyed, um, or what I was passionate about. 
So I sometimes wonder if I had grown up knowing those things, how my life would be different. But I'm fine with, you know, I'm even grateful for the path that I've been on. And and I'll just continue continue with that. Yeah, often people think, well, you know, if I had only been given the same opportunity or, or, or the same uh, whatever that this person had, I could be just as successful or more successful. And, and kind of like what we talked about with the financial well-being, right? Financial well-being is not having gobbets of money. And I would argue success is not measured in dollars. Success, in my opinion, is measured in, in, in nights of sound sleep and, and smiles and the relationships that you have with the people that you care about. That's how I measure success. How happy am I in my life, realistically? Am I happy in the home that I'm in with my family? And, and if that's the case, then, then I'm a successful person. I mean, I don't care if I make 20 grand a year or if I make 120 grand a year. It doesn't make any difference to me. If my family is provided for, if I'm provided for, and everybody's happy, that's what matters. That that to me is success, and and financial well being kind of follows that same path. And yep. to your point, you went in thinking, well, I can read and write, right? So I'm going to be an English major, and <laughs> I'm going to do all that. And when you got out, you realized, you know what? I'm going to follow this person because I, I I identify with or I mesh very well with their personality. I enjoy their managing style, whatever it is. There was a connection there. Yep. And you trusted the connection enough to make a change. And it turned out that that was, it, it led you to the path that you're on. And that's what I would say to everybody. Hey, look, just because you had a different path to get to where you were, all of those things that happened to you, good, bad, or indifferent, along that path shaped who you are today. Yep. That's how I see myself. I am not thrilled about a lot of the things that have happened to me, you know, in my past, but they made me who I am today and they also shaped my my image and my perception of the world and what I believe to be success. And yeah, that's, that's something to think about is as we go forward, don't be afraid to make a change. If you find a passion and you can pursue it, kind of like what you did every day, you came home, put your coat down, check the news, check the finance. And that was what you did. And, and that passion became a career that you seem to be excited about. I mean, you've been doing it a long time now and that's, yeah. that's something, something to say. Yep. Well, good deal. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you again for coming out tonight, for sitting down, for having a conversation with me. And for the listeners, I'll make sure to link all the different things we talked about in the show notes, as well as some other things, you know, that maybe can help you as, as we go through this as well. On the next episode, I will be discussing getting started in firearms. If you have any feedback, feel free to send me an email at podcast at therenpo.com. That's T H E. R-E-N-P-O dot com. I would also appreciate it if you left a review wherever you podcast. That helps this show become discoverable to others and helps me understand where things can be improved. Don't forget to subscribe and auto-download new episodes so you don't miss any of the future topics. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.